In our last episode, I hinted at where we would be going together in this one. Moving from the in the upper room vantage point of Pentecost down to the scene just outside those walls, the crowd milling around right outside their door. And last week we talked about how the Holy Spirit's arrival was the answer to every deficiency and every high calling of Jesus unto those 120 disciples in that upper room. So let's do the same with the crowd outside. First of all, why are they here? Meaning, why are they in Jerusalem? Wherever you're sitting right now, if I was with you, I would ask you, do any of you know the meaningfulnesses of Pentecost? Like, what was this celebration celebrating? Four things. One, according to the commands of Exodus 34, this was the time to bring the first fruits of the seven-week grain harvest, which is why the name of the festival was actually Shavuot, weeks, meaning the festival of weeks. Number two, According to tradition, this was the exact day when Moses had received the law from Yahweh up on Mount Sinai. Three, according to the manner in which the new grain and livestock offerings were to be made in the temple, this would be coming from Numbers 28 and Leviticus 23, this day was meant to be a perpetual reminder to the people of their 40-year wilderness wanderings and their subsequent crossing into the Promised Land. And then lastly, fourth, according to even later mystical tradition, the time between Passover and Pentecost was thought of as, quote, the courting days of the bridegroom Israel with the bride Torah, the law. So, these thousands of people outside are holding up offerings, desirous of honoring the Old Covenant, mindful of their people's wandering and also inheritance, and in the mindset of, let's call it, a divine romance. In other words, these crowds of people are actually in a really suitable attitude of mind for what's about to happen on this day, in their midst. But just like in our last episode, let's consider where their viewpoint, their worldview, is on this morning deficient. Where are these thousands of people missing the mark on all God has for them? Well, again, four ways. One, they think of the offerings they offer as external requirements, lists and to-dos for God, which check the box for yet another year. Two, they think of the law as a historical record of actions and activities, or non-actions and non-activities, which are the province of a thoughtful mind, rarely the heart. Three, Though they are literally now standing in the promised land of old, their hearts are still, from the perspective of God, ever wandering, never quite home with Him. Lastly, fourth, they think of the whole thing, the whole interrelationship between God and humankind, Yahweh and His people, as being a collective nationhood-level agreement, like a contract. 
In other words, this is between all of us and God. Rarely does this get down in their thinking to the level of God wooing the heart of each individual. So again, thousands of people making offerings, but externalized. Honoring the old covenant, but with head, not with heart. Remembering his promises from the past, but not fully possessing the true inheritance. Believing vague things about the heart of God for humankind, but not really believing in what he aims to do in the inner life of the individual. My friends, let's be with them right there on that morning of Pentecost. With those thousands of people crowding a central square in Jerusalem under the glaring of the sun. They swirl and flow and eddy at stalls, outdoor booths, vendors hawking this and that of their wares. The noise of all these voices collects in the air like humming clouds of bees. The cobbles give off a warmth under their sandaled feet. Children lose their parents. Uh, Couples are holding hands so as not to be split up. The, The tall ones are the only ones able to catch their breath above the top of this meandering herd. It's just about nine o'clock in the morning when all at once a silence beginning at the eastern edge of the square nearest to a tall, narrow house near that corner. A silence begins to migrate westward across the people. This silence is that kind of listening quiet when ears cock toward a strange or unexpected happening or sound. This wave of quiet continues moving over the square. All the people are listening to a strange indoor sound, almost like a wind. This wind sound builds like a mighty squall, blowing, gathering, gusting. Yet it's within that tall, narrow house just over yonder. Suddenly, then, light, a dazzling light. The gaps in the slats of the shutters of that upper room are lit with a glow brighter than the daylight. The silence of the crowd below gives over to expressions of surprise, shock. (gasps) The people now peer upward toward the upper part of that tall, narrow house. It's clear the wind and light are contained within its topmost story. A balcony juts out from the square side face of its upper room. The crowd starts unconsciously moving in the direction of the tall, narrow house. The press of bodies begins to become far more uncomfortable. Just then, above, the upper room door is opening. Men, women, and children exit onto that square side balcony up above. Their faces are lit by something utterly extraordinary. They speak in voices of seemingly dozens of languages. 
Yet the crowd below, no matter their homeland, background, tongue, sect of the Hebrew faith, can all hear mention, each in his own tongue, of just one name. Over and over and over again. The name Jesus. My friends, this Pentecost crowd with their offerings, with their old covenant, with their wandering spiritual lives, with their muddled view of what it is God wants with each of them, is in this moment about to encounter the actual spirit of Jesus, who is the promise and the fulfillment of all that God has always had in mind. Instead of externalized offerings offered up to God, the life of God offered inwardly into them. Instead of an old covenant based entirely on human obedience to God, a new covenant sealed in his blood written upon their hearts. Instead of aimless lives wandering they knew not where, a forever inheritance starting right then in the other country within. Instead of vague, uh, collectivized understandings of the promise of God, each individual coming into direct contact with the Spirit of God. So, just to be clear, you and I, my friends, my listeners, knowing Jesus, we are upper room people. The Holy Spirit has already begun His work in us. But so many people we will meet today, this week, this month, this year, in this lifetime, those are people down in the square. So what is it that I want you and I to hear and internalize when we think about the way the Holy Spirit works? Well, I gave you three observations in the last episode, so why not? Let's do it again. Observation one. It is the meeting of our open, listening, awake, waiting, obedient wills to follow Him and the vast, blind, indifferent, diffident will of the world to not that, in the presence of the Holy Spirit's direct daily guidance, sets up these sorts of miracles of the kingdom of heaven invading individual lives. Friends, it's us being completely awake to it and those people around us having no idea that's where he wants to invade. No Christian system can replicate the results of that first Pentecost. Why? Because the Holy Spirit himself is the system. And yet, so humorously, the Holy Spirit has never been a system. He is as alive and as self-differentiating as was Jesus himself. Friends, the Holy Spirit is the bearer of the way of Jesus. And where is he living? In you. Second observation. So then often you and I worry, well, what do I say to people? And then Jesus laughs and replies to you, never worry about how you are to speak or what you are to say. You will be told at the time what you are to say, for it will not be really you who are speaking, 
but the spirit of your father speaking through you. Last observation. Following Jesus, there are times for being logical, pragmatic, and studied. And there are also times for being out of our minds, wild, reckless. And yet, did you know this? Vast swaths of Christendom try to stake their claim upon one or the other of those. Uh, There are literally existing systematic theologies claiming to support each of these sides. But I'll say it again. Following Jesus, there are times for being logical, pragmatic, and studied, and... There are also times for being out of our minds, wild and reckless. You have to remember, Jesus himself was the God-man who both stormed the temple commerce, brandishing a braided whip, and he was also the serene, brilliant speaker of the Sermon on the Mount. My friends, under the power of this Holy Spirit, we must be both and sorts of Holy Spirit-led disciples, if we would follow that man, Jesus the Christ. Thanks so much for listening.